You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. Well, the first thing I want to draw your attention to this morning from the passage is that it contains a picture of the church, and that's really the heart of what I want to say. It's not a complicated picture, actually. Um, in the previous section uh, of Mark's Gospel, the disciples were sent out by Jesus on mission, the sending out of the twelve, uh, to go and preach the gospel, to heal the sick, to cast out demons. And um, so he sent them out to share the gospel. They return in this passage, that's what's happening right at the beginning, and they gather around Jesus and tell him all the things they've done. He then takes them to rest and to spend time with him. As they spend time with him, the need of the people around them who are following Jesus becomes overwhelmingly apparent. And in the next bit of scripture, the bit we missed out, um, Jesus sends them out again on mission to feed the 5,000. And what you see there just very, very simply is a pattern that is like a heartbeat. Uh, the blood, you, you know how the heart works, the blood is pumped from the right side of the heart around the body, fills the body with oxygen, and then it returns to the left side of the heart where it's sent to the lungs to be replenished with oxygen, then back to the right side of the heart and back all around the body again. Just very, very simple. Ba-bum, ba-bum. These two sides of the heart, this um, being sent out and being gathered in, like a heartbeat. And this, that's the rhythm of the church that we see in this passage of Scripture. Mission, communion. Being sent out, being gathered back in. Being sent out, being gathered back in. The disciples are sent out, they come back to be with Jesus. They're sent out again, they come back to be with Jesus. Really, really simple. That's the nature of the church. That's what the church is supposed to be. Mission, communion. Mission and communion. We get that all throughout the Bible. We could take a whole bunch of examples. You get it in, for example, in Acts 2. The Holy Spirit fills the church at Pentecost. The birth of the church is right there, the same pattern. The church is born, 3,000 people get saved. What's the first thing they do? They gather together. They begin living in communion together. They have this koinonia, koinonia. Uh, They begin to share a life together. As they live out this life full of the Spirit, they're, they're filled even more with the Spirit. People are drawn to them. The church begins to send people out, and they grow in number daily. They gather, and they grow. They gather, and they grow. It's a heartbeat. Ba-bum, ba-bum. Mission, communion. That's the church. That's the first thing. Really straightforward, isn't it? The second thing I want you to notice in this passage is there are references here to uh, the shepherd theme that goes through well, pretty much the whole of Scripture. So we can see, first of all, Jesus' actions towards the disciples. They call to mind Psalm 23, which I'm pretty certain most of you will know. Even if you don't know the number, you'll know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me like to lie down in green pastures and so on. So this is Mark is consciously, in telling this story, he's highlighting for us the way in which Jesus is being a shepherd. He's using language and he's choosing particular words to highlight this aspect of what Jesus is doing. So he's concerned for them, he gives them rest. He takes them to a quiet place. Yeah, the word that's used for rest in Greek is, is a very unusual word. There's a, there's, a, there's a better, more common word that you might use in any other circumstance, but but Mark is, chooses a word that deliberately references Psalm 23. 
He takes them to a place to give them food to eat. So Jesus is shepherding, shepherding the disciples, but the shepherding doesn't end there. As he looks out to the crowd that's following, uh, he, he, you've got to imagine Jesus in a boat. He's taking the disciples to this remote place, and along the shore is a great crowd of people. They're not far enough out to see that um, they're unrecognizable. People can see that it's Jesus in the boat with his disciples, and this crowd begins following them along the seashore. And as Jesus looks out upon them, as they begin to follow, he is moved with compassion for them. So it's a wonderful word. I'm going to return to it in, uh, in Greek. It's, it, the word means, it, compassion isn't really a strong enough word in English. It means he's moved in the depths of his being. He looks out at this crowd who are lost. They're all over the place in terms of what they believe and how they live. They're, they're hungry. They're physically hungry, but they're also spiritually hungry. And he, he says, they, he literally says, so it's not even coded in, you know, hidden from us. He says, they are like sheep without the shepherd, verse 34. So Mark is deliberately highlighting this theme from Israel's history of the good shepherd. So for Israel, he's saying Jesus is the fulfillment of this a long-standing promise that God made to, uh, to the people of Israel. That in the Messiah, he would provide them with a shepherd, a leader who was like Moses would feed them in the, in the wilderness. Like Moses would lead them into, into a promised land. It would lead them into a deeper relationship with God. But he would be better than Moses. This Messiah would be a shepherd king. So in Ezekiel uh, 34, God prophesies through uh, Ezekiel prophesies. God speaks through him to the people. And God says, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. So Mark is, as well as showing us this heartbeat of mission and communion, He's also showing us who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He's the Good Shepherd. But what I want you to notice, particularly about this shepherd portrait, is that there is a match between the nature of the church as gathering and going, as communion and mission, and the love of Jesus Christ as the shepherd. Jesus is moved with a particular love for the disciples. And he's moved for the crowds around, but he's moved in different ways for them. He cares for the disciples. His care for them is intimate. It's familiar. He wants to spend time with them. He loves to be with them. I don't think it's reading too much into the text to imagine that. He, he likes that he's, he's caring for them in this intimate way. And then there's his love for the crowds, which it can't be the same because he's not, he's not friends with them. He's not in fellowship with them like he is with the disciples. But it's the same sort of love. It's a, it's a, it's a love that moves out of the depths of his being. I was talking about this, this Greek word, the Greek word. I'm going to tell you, not to show off my Greek, which those of you in the know will know is not very good. <laughs> but just because it's a funny word. The Greek word for Jesus' feeling for this crowd is esplanknisthei. <laughs> Thank you. Just in case you're temporarily, yeah, it does, isn't it? In case you've been temporarily transported to the Mediterranean by my wonderful rendition of that word. Esplank Nispey. Thank you. Think of spleens. Think of, that's where, you know, there's a link with the, the word. It's, it means moved in the guts, in the bowels. It's like when you really feel something strongly, whether it's love or passion or anger or injustice or whatever it is, you feel it here. 
And it, and it moves you to action. That's the, that's the word that Mark is using to explain Jesus' feeling. Gut-wrenched, I think, would be a good translation for this word. Jesus is gut-wrenched as he looks at this crowd of people without a shepherd. So he's got the love for the disciples, which is a gut-wrenching love. It's a love of familiarity. He delights in them. He wants to be with them. And his, his, this love for the crowd, which is a gut-wrenching love, it's a love of compassion. A desire to reach out and gather in. And what we see in this, the heartbeat in the shepherd is actually the heartbeat of the church, communion and mission, is the heartbeat of Christ. It's the heartbeat of Christ. It's his love for his people and for his love for those who are not yet his people. So Jesus' heart is beating in that way, and that becomes the heartbeat of the church. His love for his disciples calls them to himself. His love for the world sends them out. His love for his disciples shares in their joy and longs to give them rest. And his love for the world sends them out again. He loves the church. He loves the world. And likewise, we're called to love the church and to love the world. Like a heartbeat. This understanding of Gathering and going is absolutely central, I think, to our understanding of what it means to be the church. Beating with the heart of Christ, moved by his love, we are called to gather together in communion with one another and with Jesus. To share and enjoy his love and his care for us. To delight in him and know his delight for us. And that gathering together also sends us out. As we're filled with his life and his love, as we become aware of it, as we express it back to him, we are moved with the same esplankness there for the world around us. With love for those outside the church. So this is the, the first point, the really central point of what I want to say this morning. The church is communion and mission. So I just want to bring out three kind of applications of that. I don't think they're too complicated. I hope they're... I really feel like God wants to speak to us through them this morning. So firstly then, communion and mission really helps us to understand how the church should work. You know, there's a lot of talk in uh, amongst pastors and kind of blogs I read and books I read about what's the purpose of the church. Actually, the question is often framed as what's the mission of the church? And so there's lots of church uh, talk about that churches should be missional. There's a lot of talk about like the key to church growth is church planting. It's a highly outward-looking uh, mobilization, like real focus on evangelism, like a you know evangelical plus plus sort of uh, focus of what the church should be. And I, I, um, so if I go to a conference or something like that, often you'll hear people speaking on this subject, and um, it's a, it's a wonderful focus. I'm saying this because I'm going to say something negative. <laughs> but um, it's a wonderful focus and because we are called to do mission and we are called to evangelize. And you know, a church without evangelism, a church without converts, is, it's like a childless family, isn't it? It's like a family with partner children. It's, there is a joy. There is something essential about what it means to be, to be the church that sends us out. But what, I wanted, what I'm wanting to say to you this morning, what I think God would remind us of, is that there is a step before that that is absolutely vital to fulfilling that mission. I was at um, a conference um, probably about a year and a half ago 
And this guy was talking about church planting. He was literally setting up new churches. And he said that in the city where they were, they planted about 100 churches, which is amazing, right? And but as he began to explain what, they, what they'd actually done, it became very apparent that his definition of church was simply a place where people did what I'm doing right now, which is preaching. It was a building with a preaching venue. And so actually, he was, they were counting. They would have, like in one building, they would have three services in a day, one in the morning, one around lunchtime, one in the evening, uh, with a different preacher. And a different set of people would come and gather and hear the preaching. And for him, it was when people gathered together to hear God's words preached, that counted as a church block. Well, I'm all for you know, the hard work and the effort and the courage of mission. And it's wonderful that people are coming under the ministry of the word. But that's not, I would say, if we understand this model of church, that's not what a church is. So for him, it was more about this, this preaching and particularly the gospel being preached. So people having an opportunity to hear the gospel, both believers and unbelievers. That's not the picture of the church that comes from Scripture. As, as good or as helpful as it may be as a tool to help us think about mission. If we look at this passage, really interestingly, kind of uh, woven into it, we actually get a sense of what church should be. The disciples return from this, this mission that we haven't read about today. They've been sent out all over Judea um, and Galilee to preach the gospel. And then they gather together around Jesus. The word used for gather together in this passage is synagogue, which is, uh, you know, that was the early, uh, the word used for the gathering of Jewish people when they came to worship God. They synagogue around Jesus. So what is the church? First of all, it's a gathering around Jesus. Then they tell him what they've done. There's, this is kind of like a, a model for prayer. And they're talking to God. They're talking to him. They're telling what they've done. They're, they're bringing together their kind of offerings I, I did this and this happened. They're gathering together. They're bringing them, their lives towards God. They eat together or they go away to eat. Jesus takes them to have something to eat. So, which is both a physical thing, like actually having fellowship with God, but also it's a metaphor for teaching, um, that they're being fed by God's word. And they have fellowship with Jesus and they have fellowship with one another. They're called. He says he wants to take them to a lonely place, a place far from everyone. And that's a, a picture just like God called those people out of Egypt into the wilderness. It's a picture of God's desire to be with his people alone, to be among his holy people in a way that he can't when, uh, when they're not called out. It's really interesting, actually, that those things match really closely what happens in Acts 2. They gathered together daily, they prayed, they broke bread together, they heard the apostles' teaching, and it's a very, very similar match there. What are we saying, very simply, is in the first instance, church, not just what happens on a Sunday morning, but the whole thing, is about communion with God. Spending time with him, simply. You know, you can expand that to the fullest sense of the phrase, spending time with him, not just praying, but it's about communion with God. It's about enjoying God as Christians. God's, and it, when you think about it, it's actually really, really straightforward. God's ultimate aim, he makes it very clear in Scripture, God's ultimate aim is to bring all things into communion with himself. All things, to fill everything with his life, to make everything reveal his glory and be full of his spirit. That's God's 
ultimate aim. And the church, very, very simply, is it's the first place. It's the place where God is already doing that. God is already in communion. One day, everything, God will be all in all, it says in Scripture. One day, everything will be full of his spirit. Like um, As the waters cover the sea, the glory of God will cover the earth. And the church is the place where that has begun to happen. And the great thing is we get to experience that as church, as God's people. So, to say that the the church's purpose is mission or evangelism, to to boil it down to that, to be uh, just a missional church, it's a bit like saying that, you know, the real purpose of marriage is to have children. You know, it's, it's kind of right, but it's missing an awful lot of detail, isn't it? Do you see what I'm saying? You know, if, if you went to a marriage prep course and um, <laughs> if you went to a marriage prep course and the summary of the material was, okay, all you guys need to know is the main purpose of marriage is to have children. And you took that literally, you would probably have quite a messed up marriage, I think. <laughs> I mean, maybe you'd work out some of the details of is this far-fetched? Are you understanding what I'm saying? There's a trend. The reason I'm saying this is there's a trend within our within evangelical churches, within the kind of churches where that we would associate with, to focus almost exclusively on mission and really not to get, well, not to articulate, that's probably fairer, that the first purpose of church is communion with God, that inevitably overflows into mission. So we have, you know, over several decades, maybe three decades or more, there's an emphasis on being seeker-sensitive, on being missional, on having an open table at communion, of um, not really talking too much about baptism, of of downplaying things like membership, of downplaying things that are kind of quirky and distinctively Christian, like fasting, uh, downplaying, like teaching on uh, on morality, like saying this is a distinctively Christian. Moral. This is what Christians do or don't do. You know, like we've done a series on Ten Commandments, but that's quite unusual. So there's, a, there's a downplay of those things because we don't want to look too weird. We don't want to be too distinctive compared to the world around us because we want them to think that we're normal, just like them. But you know, if we do that, it's like to go back to the heart metaphor. It's like having a hole in the heart. You know, when Nathan was born, he had a little murmur in his heart. And they explained it all to us, and they said, you know, when a baby's born, there's a hole. And it seals up almost immediately. It's almost as soon as they take their first breath. The two sides of the heart become divided to enable blood to pump around the body. If that hole doesn't heal up, the blood just swells around. It's not, you know, it doesn't get around the body efficiently. And they'll have to do an operation, some of you know from experience. And when we confuse communion and mission, it's like having a hole in our heart. Instead of getting a babam, which is this efficient gathering, loving to be with Jesus, spending time with him, and then full of his spirit going out, going out in the power of the spirit, we hardly go out at all. I think, if you look at the trends in most churches where we emphasize mission, I think you would identify that trend. Almost the more exclusively you focus on mission, less effective, the more you, maybe it's better to say, the more you neglect that emphasis on communion, the less effective missionaries. 
Okay, what's the upshot of that? We're still on the first application, which is that this communion mission helps us to understand the church. If we don't love the church, if we don't love the communion that results from gathering around Jesus, then we won't do mission well or at all. You know, the only reason the disciples went out in the first place was because they gathered around Christ. Do you think they would have gone out on mission like casting out demons and healing the sick if they'd never met Jesus? No, of course not. Of course they would have. They gathered around Christ. He sent them. The only reason disciples went anywhere near those 5,000 people to feed them in that bit that we didn't read was because they gathered around Jesus. And Jesus is the one who said, look at that. We need to do that. And I think the only reason that truly moves us, the most powerful motivation to sharing the gospel, to sharing our faith in mission and in evangelism specifically, is if we gather around Christ and enjoy communion with him. You know what I think the, the biggest thing that holds back evangelism in our day is we don't enjoy being Christians. It's, it's not that we're woolly about what we believe. It's not that we're ill-defined in our faith. It's not that we don't think people should agree with it. It's not that we're passionate about what we believe. It's that we don't enjoy it. If you're not enjoying being a Christian, then you are not going to tell anyone about what it means to be a Christian, aren't you? I don't, I don't want this to sound superficial. I, I'm really serious, actually. I think that this is God's word to this church. I think, I think that <laughs> for some of you, this is a, almost a chronic diagnosis. I speak to me as well. What's the biggest thing that holds me back from sharing it? Like, I don't enjoy it enough. I'm almost skating on a thin ice, aren't I, as a pastor? Don't worry, I'm not about to quit or anything. <laughs> but this is a dangerous thing for me to preach. But I, I feel that God genuinely wants to, to put his finger on this issue and say, you know, I think for you guys, one of the things that's holding you back, whether it's going to be at the fate later or whether it's in general in life, whatever, in sharing the gospel is you're not enjoying fellowship with Jesus and you're not enjoying church. You know, so there's that old saying that, you know, being a Christian, evangelism is just one beggar He's found food, he's telling another beggar where to find bread. You heard that phrase? That was probably Spurgeon, I think. <laughs> Evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. But that presumes that you're hungry and it presumes that the bread satisfies you, doesn't it? If you're not satisfied, you're still hungry, you're not going to be telling anyone where to find anything. So here's the challenge then. So I think I really feel God would bring to us today in the first instance. Inasmuch as it depends on you, do you delight in the communion of the church? That is all the privileges of being a member of the body of Christ offers. Do you get that? That is supposed to be a part of, of what a healthy and wholesome and godly, God-glorifying life looks like. is to be in communion with the church and to enjoy all the benefits, not just to come on a Sunday, but to enjoy fellowship and to enjoy the teaching and to enjoy prayer and to enjoy our way of life and to delight in uh, the, even the, the, the law that God gives us. All those things are, are part of what it means to be a Christian. The Bible says in Psalm 48, beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth, like the heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion the city of the great king. That's a, a picture of the church. Beautiful 
from its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. In as much as it depends on you, do you delight in the communion of the church? I say in as much as it depends on you because the church isn't perfect. <laughs> you know, other people, you know, I, Andy as an elder, everyone who leads this church, we have a job to make sure that the church is everything it can be. You know, to minister and to build up the body of Christ. But what about, so we have a job to do. To make sure that church is that what joy fulfilled that it is that communion thing. But in as much as it depends on you, how is your heart when it comes to spending time with God and particularly enjoying communion in church? Have you, have you lost faith in what God can do when you gather together with his people? Do you, do you come on a Sunday or to your home group or just to fellowship in the week randomly? Do you come expecting Something deeper than everyday experience. You expect God to do amazing things when you, when you gather together. Are you, are you, am I lazy in my preparation for gathering together with God's people? Do we find our rest elsewhere? You know, this, this isn't meant to be a pep talk, by the way. I'm not trying to say... Come on, let's try harder. I'm genuinely trying to think that God wants to say, what is going on in your heart? Like, not rhetorical question, like, find an answer, come back to me in prayer. <laughs> Why aren't you enjoying it as much as you should? And if it's something that's outside of you, pray about that thing. Come and talk to me and say, you know, I, I'm not sure that we should be doing this, or I, I, I'm not, uh, there's something we should be doing that we're not doing as a church. But in as much as it depends on you, is there something you could bring to God and say, you know, God, I'm not coming with the right attitude. I'm not bringing the right things into my fellowship. I'm not expecting to meet with you, Lord, when I do church. Pray and ask God to show you what those things are. And if there's something you can change, ask God for his help to change it. Can we just tack something on the end of that? In as much as you already do love the communion of the church, and there's so many things I love about our church, and I know you do too, are you making that link with mission? Are you thinking when you, you're spending time with people who aren't Christians, are you thinking, do you know what we've got to offer is so amazing in terms of enjoying God's presence, in terms of hearing his word, in terms of having his, his law shape our lives and give us, give us a spiritual abundance, in terms of the peace that God offers, in terms of the fellowship and security that comes with having this amazing family around us. When there are people in need around us, you're making that link and saying, you know what, I've got something really good. It's not just my individual faith. I've got church to gather people into. Are you making that link? Okay. So it helps us to understand church. Secondly, do you really, really comprehend God's love for those outside Do you understand the gut-wrenching love that God has for people who are not yet saved? Does God love everyone? 
You know, it depends on who you ask. You know? <laughs> depends on which uh, theological tradition you emphasize. I know churches rather say, nope, that would be silly. And other churches will go, of course he does. You know, it's actually helpful to think it through. Um, theologians very helpfully make up long words and break things apart, like uh, you know, someone who's not content to look, just look at a Rolex but has to take it to pieces and examine all the cogs, something I like to do. <laughs> but they have two words to describe the kind of two different sides of God's love. They talk about his beneficent love, which is his, his love of goodwill. That means no matter how beneficent love is, kind of like the determination. It actually has nothing to do with the esplinkness day. I think I've forgotten how to say it, but anyway. It doesn't really have to do anything to do with the gut-wrenching love of God. It's the kind of like, no matter what happens, God will always do good. Because that is who God is, isn't it? He makes the rain to, uh, to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous, the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. He blesses everything that he can bless because it's his nature. So you, he, is, he is love. So he blesses, he does good will. But you know, that can be experienced both positively and negatively. Like you know, God's wrath is his goodwill. Because it's meant to lead people to repentance. You know, that doesn't feel very nice. So God is beneficently loving. He's definitely beneficently loving for everyone. I think most people would agree. But there's the other type of God's love. It's, it's an unusual word. It's this complacent love. We think complacent means lazy or not trying very hard. But it's got a technical meaning. It means a love that rests on. A love that delights in. A love that moves from the, the guts God loves. What we see in this passage is that God does love people with his complacent love who are outside the church. Jesus' es blankness is an expression of this complacent love, this passionate love, directed to those who are not yet gathered to him. genuinely loves people. He desires to have communion with them. He delights in them to the extent to which they conform to his word, which usually by their own abilities is not very much because they need God's grace and they need to be saved, but he does delight in the goodness that's there. He delights in their potential that one day they, that they can be like Christ if they're saved and they have his grace over them. You know, it's not we want to be realistic. It's not rainbows and roses. He does. God may be disgusted with people's sin. He may be angry with their rebellion. He may direct his wrath upon people in order to bring them to repentance. But he is gut-wrenchingly moved for people who are not saved. He's angry at the injustices inflicted on them. He's distraught at the hurt that they've experienced. He's distressed at how they are misled by the false teachers and the false ideologies that surround them. He longs to gather them and to protect them and to lead them by his word and to to love them and to know them like he knows his disciples and like he knows you and I. He desires that no one should perish, but all should have eternal life. The shepherd heart of Christ is to bring people into communion with God. So just very, very simply, what is your heart? I think God would ask just ask us to examine our heart. What is your heart to those who don't know Christ? Is it, I'll love them beneficently, but I'm not going to like them? <laughs> That's a funny picture, isn't it? Imagine Jesus going to Nicodemus's house, or speaking with Nicodemus, or um, who's the guy who climbed the tree? Zacchaeus, yeah. 
going to Zacchaeus' house and being like, um, just pretending to like him. Can you imagine that? I mean, Zacchaeus was, you know, a bad guy. But I don't think Jesus pretended to want to have communion with him until he made that repentance. He was like, okay, now I can actually like you. It's such a funny picture, isn't it? God doesn't want us to pretend to like people in order to save them. He wants us to see them as he sees them, with this gut-wrenching love. Yes, not to be blind to their faults, not to, um, not to take on their sin and be, have fellowship in sin in any way, but to see them as God sees them, as people who can be brought into communion, people made in his image, children lost or sheep without a shepherd. So I believe God would secondly just ask us to cry out to him for that <laughs> S-blankness thing for the people around us. The people in the village and the people who live next door to you and across the road from you. The people your kids go to school with. <laughs> the kids your kids go to school with. The people you work with. My heart is just <laughs> it's so cold compared to where it should be. Just, uh, you know, I need him to set me on fire with that love. I don't know about you guys. It's very simply an invitation to cry out to him. Thirdly, then, God wants us to. God wants to remind you of his love for you. You know, I've spoken quite boldly so far about God's love for his disciples, saying. You know, he's showing a genuine, compassionate concern for them. But actually, it's not that obvious in this passage. You know, he, he, he's obviously moved for the crowds, isn't he? He says so. They're like sheep without a shepherd. But his concern for the disciples could seem very much more everyday. You haven't rested. You haven't eaten. Let's get away somewhere a bit quiet. But his compassion for them, his love for them, is just as real. In fact, I would say it's more so. Jesus doesn't love them less because they're already gathered to him. He loves them more. And I just feel like God would speak to us on this particular issue. You know, after you've been a Christian for a long time, or even for a short time actually, we start to forget about the love that moved God to save you in the first place. You know, we start to interpret his love for us through the lens of his good intentions only, not the heart, the gut-wrenching love that he has for us. We start to say, you know, I know God loves me in the sense that he'll do good to me and everything that happens is for my good. But we forget that that, that beneficence is moved by compassion. We forget that it's moved by his love with, with, for us. There's a familiarity that can blind us to the, the, the deep currents that are moving and the, the, the river of love that flows from his heart for, for each one of us. Maybe because we're over-familiar. Maybe because we see sin or weakness in our own lives and we begin to get a bit confused about the gospel and about why God loves us. We think maybe he doesn't love us as, as much as we thought he, he once did because we feel condemned. You know, I wonder if the struggles that 
Christians commonly face, and maybe some of you are facing, to pray, to spend time in God's presence. The, the struggle to be moved in worship or to, to abandon your emotions in worship and to really delight in his presence, the, the struggles we have to really perceive the power of what's happening when we take communion together or to, to serve people with abandon. Or, or the reserve we have about telling people about Jesus. I wonder sometimes if all that stems from a doubt about God's complacent love for us. That it's, it's not just that he has goodwill for us, that his heart is moved for you. God would just say to us, if, you, if my heart is moved for those outside, how much more is my heart moved for you. Jesus loved being with his disciples. He wasn't just being pragmatic. He loved them for their characters. He loved them how each one responded to him differently and reflected his love differently. He loved them for one one day they would be apostles, foundations of the church. He loved to spend time with them, to be away with them, far from the crowd, and just to be in intimate communion with him. Do you know that God feels the same about you? That he doesn't just love you, he likes you. It's just profoundly important. And you know, again, this isn't a pep talk. This isn't just bland affirmation. I'm not trying to give you a motivational speech. He loves us for concrete reasons. You are made in his image. Each one of us is made in his image, but we're all unique. You know, we reflect his glory in different ways. Each one of us refracts his glory back to him in a way that no one else can. You know, God doesn't judge you or see you like other people. He sees what's in your heart. So there's no superficiality in what God loves about you. It's, not, it's nothing about the external things that other people might judge you on. He loves you because of what's inside you, because you are made in his image, because you are unique in the whole of creation, in that you can return his love freely and fully, like the son loves the father. Because human beings, when we're transformed into the image of Christ, we, we change the world around us and release God's glory everywhere else. You know, earlier I said that God's glory is going to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's through his glory shining through us, that that will happen. Because we enjoy him like no one else in creation. Doesn't, when someone enjoys your company, doesn't it make you enjoy their company more? That's how God feels about us. We enjoy his love and his holiness in a way that no other creature can. You know, in the words of that hymn, I can't remember which one, it says, you know, downward bends the burning eye of the angels, of the seraph in heaven. Cannot bear to behold the glory of God, the holiness of the cross, the purity of God's love revealed at Calvary. And yet we, alone among all of God's creatures, stare brazenly at God's love and delight in him and are able to fully comprehend and respond to it because we have all the inheritance of Christ. We gaze in rapt at him like no one else. He loves us because we delight in him. And he loves us because we are so full of <laughs> Potential. Again, I don't want it to sound like a pep talk, but you know, if you're a Christian, one day you're going to be like Jesus. 
you know, we love our kids. We love them for what they are right now. You know, whatever age, six months, one year, two years, five years. You know, we love them for who they are right now. But a huge part of our love is also that knowing that they're not going to remain at that age. They're going to grow and become a person. And God feels exactly the same about us. He delights in us as we are now. He delights in you as you are now. But he also delights in you for who you will one day be. If we have faith in Christ, we're washed by the Spirit, united with him. His love for us moves beyond pity, beyond compassion, beyond beneficence to delight. We are like a bride to a bridegroom. He speaks to us in the words of Song of Songs. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. You have captivated my heart. My sister, my bride, you have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. Is it really possible that God could love you and me like that? Slaves to sin as we were. Broken and dirty and sinful and rebellious and lost as we were. It is. It's the whole story of our salvation. He loved us first, and so we are now lovely in his arms. What doubt is there in you about God's love for you? What effect is that having on your life? <coughs> Perhaps the things that have happened to you recently, God's providence has made you doubt. The circumstances in your life, maybe suffering you're going through or suffering someone you love is going through. God is not coldly and simply beneficently taking you through hard things to make you a better person. He suffers with you in your suffering. He wants to teach you a lesson, not just I will always do good to you, but I will set a table for you in the presence of your enemies. No matter what you go through, I'm there in the midst of it with you. He's moved with compassion for you. Perhaps some ongoing sin in your life or something you perceive in yourself, a weakness and an inability to follow or obey God in some sense makes you feel like God is not pleased with you. Or maybe he's less pleased with you now that you're a Christian than he was on the day you got saved. Which is just crazy, isn't it, when you say it out loud? But we feel like that. God says, I love you more. You're in. You're One day you're going to be conformed to the image of my son. Is it lack of fruitfulness? God does not prune us without compassion in his heart. He, he prunes us because he loves us. He, del- he longs to see the fruitfulness burst forth from us. And he, he would only prune us if that was the, the, what was going to happen. Is it a lack of intimacy maybe makes you feel like God doesn't love you? Maybe a lack of closeness in prayer or in worship. Maybe you feel further from him than you have in the past. Let me reassure you on the basis of this love that we see in this passage that God's desire for fellowship with you is greater than your desire for fellowship with him. 
but he has an idea of fellowship that you have not even conceived of. You're thinking of lovely quiet times and, you know, warm feelings and all those things. He is going to fill you so full of his love that you could follow Jesus to the cross and still know that he loves you. Every act of God towards us, whether he feels close to us or feels far away, is to deepen our awareness of his delight in us. So what doubt is there in you about God's love for you? What effect is it having? I invite you to pray and ask God this morning to open your eyes once more to this truth that he does delight in you. Every part of your life, communion and mission, overflows from the mutual delight of you in God and him in you. And that's the heartbeat that gives us eternal life. Amen. Let's pray.